Hey friends, we're so glad that you've joined us here today. My name's Kevin and I'm one of the pastors here at Friends Church in Orange. And whether you're watching this message online or listening to it in your car or on a run or wherever you are today, it's our hope that the words that are shared, that the message of God that is shared in this message will give you hope, life, and encouragement as you seek to live faithfully for Jesus in the midst of your world. If you'd like to connect with us, you can do so by going to our website. We'd love to meet you, we'd love to connect with you, and we'd love to serve you in any way we can. How are you doing? Good. It is hot, as we said, so um, we're going to make this super fast and we'll get out. No, just kidding. No, we're going we're gonna to settle in a little bit because as you notice, we do have our, our home spaces around here. And so today we're talking about home. We're talking about what it looks like to come home, to be home, to kind of just rest somewhere. And so as I was thinking about this topic, uh, I started thinking about what is home? Because in order to say come home, you got to think about, well, what are you coming home to? So every single one of us has a different home. We have a different place where we feel comfortable, we feel safe, or we feel like we can just put our feet up and rest. But one of the common things that I've noticed about homes that we feel safe and comfortable in, it's not just the space, it's also the people, right? People actually really make a house a home. And so today we're going to be looking at that and as I was thinking about this topic of homecoming and the next couple of weeks coming home, uh, it's so fitting because my life right now, I am in the middle of, of two different homes, which is a great problem to have, but just let me paint the picture for you. So a few weeks ago, we're in our kitchen and I look down, I see some like black stuff coming through our floorboards in our kitchen. I'm like, hmm, you know, I go down, look at it. I'm like, oh, that's mold for sure. So then we take out the floorboards, there's mold all underneath our kitchen, our cabinets, so we had to take everything out. So the past six weeks we've been living in total, just like everything's kind of a mess, refrigeration in the living room, like which is also the playroom, which is also like our dining room, and it's like everything's together, the kids are there, it's just like, oh my gosh. Well, at the same time, we've been looking for a home for a long time, like a new home to move into, and we got a home. And so we're moving in two weeks, and so it's like not only are we moving, but we're, we're in a, 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 our house. We can clap, sure, thank you. It's massive. I say that to just let you know, my house, my life, it's a little bit chaotic right now. Like where I'm living, it's not very settled. And so, and if you know anything about me, I like things really settled and calm and peaceful. So this life right now that we're living is kind of, it's out of control. And I'm like, what is happening? This is just, this is madness. And it's caused me to realize a house is just a house. A place is just a place. And yes, I want it to feel comfortable. Yes, I want to feel like I'm settled. But really, it's more about the people in my life. That's really what makes my house a home. And I was actually really able to think about this because a couple days ago, Michelle and I celebrated our 15-year wedding anniversary on Thursday. That you can clap for because 15 years, you guys. But as I was thinking about that, Michelle is my home, right? She's one of the people that I'm like, when I'm with you, I'm home. We've moved to four different, five, now we're going to be five different places. Like, it's not about our house. It's about to us together. And I just want to show you, this is a picture of us at age 18 years old. How great is this? 18 years old when we met. Yes, we got married at 18. No, we, we dated for a few years. But look at, I mean, I don't know if it was the necklace or like the candy stash, but there was something about it that Michelle was like, I got to marry this guy, you know? <laughs> this guy's got it figured out. <laughs> this is us, our very first group date. 19 years later, this is us now. This is a picture of us now. This is what it looks like. One of us has gotten more beautiful. One of us has gotten a lot older. This is just what happens, more gray in the beard, you know, that would be me. Uh, and so we're finding out what it looks like to, to have a home together. We now have our two boys and they just started school so we can throw that picture up too. This is, this is my home when I think about home. I think about these guys. I think about our family. I think about this is so beautiful. I don't care where we live as long as I'm with my people, you know? 
But I also thought about other people in my life because it's not just my family. I thought about my life group. I want you guys to see this picture of my life group. This is also my family. This is also my home. These are my people who walk through the hardest times of our lives together with us. They're the people that know us and love us and pray for us. And if I'm with them, I feel comfortable. I feel at peace. I want to show you another picture. This is of a couple alpha sessions ago. This is our alpha crew. These people I now feel at home with. This is my family now because we've shared life together, because we've chosen to commit to being together. I want to show you one other picture too. And you might recognize this one. This is you guys. This is what I'm seeing right now from stage. I am seeing each and every one of you as a part of my spiritual home. Because home is not just a place, although we gather in this space, but it's a family of people. That's what it means to have a home. And every single one of us, we've been designed to desire home. We all want to come home to something. We all want to come and sit down here and say, and I don't know if you're like me, I'm like a deep couch. I like, I like go back when I'm on a couch. I'm just like, this is so nice right now. Think about that feeling when you're with other people. Who are the people that make you feel like you can do that? You can just go, okay, I'm home. And that's what we're gonna be talking about today, what it looks like to have that home. Because coming home to something like that is the best feeling in the world, right? If you've ever been on a trip or you're going somewhere, like if you go back to the home you were raised in and it's a home that you, you love or you get to see your family and there's excitement, that's the kind of home that you wanna come back to. And today, as we look at what does it look like to come home, we wanna really ask the question, how do we even find a good home? What does it mean to have a home that you want to come home to? And so today, as we look into that, we're gonna be looking at a passage in the book of Ruth. We're actually, we're looking at the whole book of Ruth today. So if you have your Bibles, you can open up to the book of Ruth. It's in the Old Testament. Uh, we'll have lots of scripture on the screens today. But I wanna tell you the story of Ruth because as we talked about in the real story the past few weeks, we've been saying every good story is a story of redemption. Every good story is a story of redemption. It goes from tragedy to, to, to gaining something. It goes from loss to gain, tragedy to joy. And Ruth has all the elements of a good, amazing, redemptive story about a woman who finds her home, a foreign, widowed woman looking to find a place and a home in a completely new area. And so today, as we look at the book of Ruth, I want you to think, what, where am I in this story? What do I identify with? Who do I identify with in this story? Because I guarantee you, every single one of us will identify with one of these characters in this story. So we're gonna dive in. Ruth 1, verse 1, start at the very beginning. In the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. And so a man from Bethlehem in Judah, together with his wife and his two sons, went to live for a while in the country of Moab. The man's name was Elimelech, his wife's name was Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malon and Kilion. They were Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah, and they went to Moab and they lived there. This is the very first tragedy, the opening statement of this whole book. There was this family, there was a famine, and they had to move in order to provide for their family again. Now I want you to, to take note, it takes place in Bethlehem, which is where they're from. So that might ring some bells to some people, we'll get back to that later, but they start in Bethlehem, then they go to a whole new country called Moab, a completely new area to find food. So the first tragedy is there's a famine in the land and they have to move. Then it gets worse. Verse three, now Elimelech, Naomi's husband, he died. And Naomi was left with her two sons. They married Moabite women, one named Orpah and the other Ruth. So her husband dies, but then it gets even worse. 
After they had lived there for about 10 years, both Malon and Kilian also died. And Naomi was left without her two sons and her husband. This is tragic. And this isn't just tragic all the time. This is especially tragic in the society in which they were living. Because for a woman to lose not just her husband, but also her sons, who were supposed to be the providers of the families in those days, they are left with nothing. They don't have a lot of rights. They don't have a way to provide for themselves. They don't get to kind of keep the land that they have. They literally say, we have to find a new way. And so Naomi, she's finding herself in a completely foreign land. She doesn't even live there. She doesn't have any family there. All she has is these two daughters-in-laws. And these two daughters, they're, they're in this land with their, their, their um, husband's mom, but they're like, well, are we going to stay with her? Like, that's not good. We should probably go back to our families. What are we going to do? And so together, they're in this desperate situation, a situation where they don't have anyone to provide for them, to protect them, to care for them. And so we see what Naomi does and says to her daughters in verse 8, as they come to this situation. Then Naomi, she said to her two daughters-in-law, go back, each of you to your mother's home. May the Lord show you kindness as you have shown kindness to your dead husbands and to me. And may the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. Now we're gonna talk a little bit today about what does it mean, you know, women needing husbands in their lives to like provide for them. And yes, I know like in this world, we're like, okay, feminism guys, like you don't need a husband like to survive in this life. But in this culture, they did. That's a very big part of what we're gonna look at today because if they didn't, there would be no protection for them. So it's a big part of it. So Naomi knows what they need most, that they need to be with their families. They need to find, go back to their families, marry back into their own people and kind of go on their way. And Naomi's gonna head back home without them. And so she says to them, hey, you should go. And so Orpah, her first daughter-in-law says, okay, you're right. And so they hug and they kiss and they cry and she goes back. She stays in Moab. But Ruth has a different reaction. Ruth replies this. She says to Naomi, don't urge me to leave you or to turn back from you. Where you go, I will go. And where you stay, I will stay. Your people will be my people and your God, my God. Where you die, I will die and there I will be buried. May the Lord deal with me, be it ever so severely, if even death separates you and me. This is the first homecoming in our story. This is the first chance that we get to see somebody choosing a new home now. It's Ruth saying, I am not at home with my people. I am at home with you, Naomi. She chooses to be at home with a person, not just in a place. And so as she does this, we get to see that not only is she her heart with, her heart with Naomi, but she also, her heart is with Naomi's God, which is fascinating to me. I grew up a Christian and I just, I've always felt like I've known the Bible, but I've never really thought about, Ruth is not an Israelite. She doesn't know God. She had her own set of religion and systems and stuff in Moab. And so when the Israelites came in and when she married into Naomi's family, she adopted their religion. She says, your God is now my God. So it seems like maybe a small choice to say, okay, we're gonna kind of like merge into the family. But this has massive implications, not just for Ruth, but for her family and eventually for the entire world, which we're gonna get to in just a little bit. So she chooses Naomi and she chooses Naomi's God. And so ultimately, she's found a home with Naomi. So that was the first homecoming. Now the second homecoming, they end up going back to Judah, to Bethlehem, the town of Bethlehem. And as they come back, Ruth is with Naomi, and Naomi comes back, and she is despondent. In fact, she tells the people, they're like, Naomi, you're back. And she says, yes, but God has abandoned us. Don't call me Naomi anymore. Call me Mara, which means bitter, because God has abandoned us. He has taken away my husband and my sons. God has not followed through with his promises. And so the end of chapter one ends with Naomi and Ruth back in Bethlehem, 
totally at a loss for what to do. What are we going to do? So chapter two then opens. They mention a man named Boaz, which we'll get to in a second. But then in chapter two, verse two, Ruth says to Naomi, she says, hey, Naomi, let me go to the fields and pick up the leftover grain behind anyone in whose eyes I find favor. And then Naomi agrees and says, go ahead, my daughter. And this is interesting because initially when I read this, I thought, oh, so she's just going to go work and she's going to make money and then she's going to provide for her and Naomi. But that's not what's happening here. What she's actually saying is, hey, let me go into the fields and as the workers go through and then the women who work in those fields who are, who are Israelites who belong there, they'll go through. And then after everyone goes through, I'm just going to go and I'm literally going to pick up the little scraps of wheat that are left and collect what I can so that we can have food to eat today. She's literally begging for table scraps in somebody else's field. Because as a foreigner, she has no rights. She has no place there. She's not encouraged to be there. So she has to do whatever she can to get food. And so Naomi says, yes, that's good because we need food. Go, Ruth, do what you can. And so as she's there collecting and, and following everyone, and just I can imagine just her demeanor just being like, I'm not here. Like, nobody see me. I'm just, I'm just providing for myself right now. I'm just trying to take care of myself and my family. And while she's in the field, she ends up in a field of a man named Boaz. She just happens to end up in that field. And Boaz just happens to be a close relative of Naomi. Just so happens. We're going to see there's a lot of happenings in this story. It's interesting. But while she's in the field, this man, Boaz, he looks out on the field and he sees all the workers and he sees Ruth going behind everyone. And so he, he asks somebody, he's like, hey, who's that foreign woman over? I don't recognize her. Where did she come from? And in verse six, the overseer, the guy who's over everything, he replies, he says, hey, she's the Moabite who came back from Moab with Naomi. So Boaz then said to Ruth, he approaches her, and I can imagine Ruth just being like, oh my gosh, I've been noticed, I've been seen, like, please, like, I'm not, I'll go, I don't want to be here. But he immediately says, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field. Don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along with the other women. So now she's brought into these, with this group with the other women. I've told the men not to lay a hand on you. So he's saying, I'm going to protect you. You will not be harmed while you're out in the fields. Whenever you're thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. And at this, Ruth, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have you found such favor in your eyes? Why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? And I love Boaz's response. He replies, I've been told all about what you have done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband. How you left your own father and mother and your homeland and you came to live with the people you didn't know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz blesses Ruth because of her blessing to Naomi. He says, you have been loyal to Naomi. I will be loyal to you. And then he uses this phrase. He says, would the Lord, the God of Israel, bless you under whose wings you have come to take refuge. And this idea of wings taking refuge is this idea of protection. It's like a mother bird, like protecting her nest and saying, you cannot harm my kids. That's the idea that, that God protects his people. And so because Ruth said yes to God and said yes to Naomi, she's now under his protection. And this same phrase is going to come up later in this passage. Just keep that in the back of your head. So you've come to take refuge under God. I love Boaz's story here. And something interesting that I learned this week is that the name Boaz, it actually means man of noble character, which is pretty amazing because as you read the story, you're like, this is a man of noble character. He lives out his name. 
he sees her plight, he sees this, and he honors her and his cousin Naomi, and he says, I will provide for you. And I think part of it, he provides for them because of their loyalty, because of Ruth's loyalty to Naomi, he says it right there. But there's something else that, that I found as well, that in the book of Deuteronomy, which is where the Israelites would go and they had their, their law and it told them how to live in the land. Deuteronomy 24, 19 gives the, the Israelites this command. It says, when you're harvesting in your field and you overlook a sheaf, it's like the little things in the, in the, in the ground, don't go back and get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the works of your hands. I can just imagine that Boaz knew this in his heart and in his head and said, there's a foreign woman. Not only is she a foreign woman, she actually is a part of my family now. And I now have obligation under God and under the law to protect her and to provide for her. Once again, Boaz, a loyal man, a man of good character. And so he provides for her. And he says, I'm going to take care of you. So he sends her back. He's like, hey, not only can you stay in the field here, let me give you some extra grain. He kind of fills up like her, her dress and she like goes and she's got all this stuff. And she comes home to Naomi at the end of chapter two. She comes home and she's like, Naomi, here's all this stuff. And Naomi's like, oh my gosh, this is amazing. You got more food than we need for today. And Ruth's like, yeah, not only that, I met a really great guy. He, he provided for us. And then Naomi was like, okay, so who is this man? Who is this man? She says, well, his name is Boaz. And as soon as Naomi heard the word Boaz, her eyes light up and she says this, verse 20, the Lord bless him, Naomi said to her daughter-in-law. He, the Lord, has not stopped showing his kindness to the living and the dead. She added, that man is our close relative. He's one of our guardian redeemers. Going to that first part, the Lord bless him. The Lord has not stopped providing for us. Does that sound like Naomi at the end of chapter one? Naomi at the end of chapter one was despondent. The Lord has given up on us. The Lord has nothing for us. The Lord has abandoned us. 20 verses later, the Lord is amazing. He is so good. He's provided for us. Can you resonate? Man, the Lord never provided for me. Oh, the God's abandoned me. 20 verses later, oh my gosh, you guys, you'll never believe what God has done. Like, this is amazing. And I love Naomi's faith in that to say the Lord has not abandoned us because her faith was renewed. And why was it renewed? Not just because she was like, oh, Ruth has some food, but because of who Boaz is. She uses that phrase, that man, he's our close relative. He is one of our guardian redeemers, which is a word that we don't use. It's not even a word. It's like two words that we put together, but it's a word in the, in the Old Testament here. And it's really an Old Testament familial word, which essentially means someone who has the obligation to redeem a relative who is in serious difficulty. So in the Old Testament, they actually had part of their law was to say within a family structure, there were certain men that were given the responsibility to be the guardian redeemers who would protect and defend and would stand up when people needed help. I like how Thea Lunk puts, describes it. She says, this person was expected to rescue or ransom or buy back or recover or redeem anyone or any property that was in danger of being removed from the family by poverty or war or death. Ruth was in danger. Naomi was in danger because of death, because of poverty. And so Boaz, as one of the guardian redeemers of the family, says, hey, it's actually my responsibility to step in. Now, I don't know if Boaz knew this or if he was aware of this because it doesn't talk about it in the first, second chapter. But in chapter three, we're gonna see this kind of comes together. And so Naomi knew that this was going to be a game changer because not only did they just need someone to provide for them, they, they needed food, they needed protection, they needed everything that they couldn't provide for themselves. 
And Naomi starts to get this plan. And so in chapter three, we see Naomi start to scheme. In chapter three, verse one, she says this. One day, Ruth's mother-in-law, Naomi, she said to her, my daughter, I have to find a home for you where you'll be well provided for. Now, Boaz, I don't know, do you remember Boaz? He's the guy in the field. Okay, yeah, Boaz. I'm just thinking here, I'm spitballing. You know, he worked with his women. He's a relative of ours, right? Have I mentioned that already? Yeah, he's a relative of ours. Tonight, I've got a plan. He's gonna be winnowing some barley on the threshing floor. Wash, put on perfume, get dressed in your best clothes, then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know that you're there until he's finished eating and drinking. And when he lies down, note the place where he's lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down, and he'll tell you what to do. This is a little, like, weird. You're like, okay, what is happening here? Like, are we about, like, what, like, I kind of see where this is going, but I'm not sure if it's going, is this in the Bible? Are we able to read the next part that comes? Like, don't worry, it's all fine in PG. But what we see is she, Ruth says to to Naomi, I'll do what you say because she trusts Naomi. And so she goes and and Boaz, he's like hanging out and he lays down. She goes to lay in his feet. And like, as a reader, I'm like, I don't totally know what's happening here. I'm a little confused, but let's, let's just see what happens. So she wakes up. Boaz wakes up in the middle of the night and Ruth's lying there, just like at, the, at his feet. And he just says, who are you? I can imagine maybe more just like, what the heck is happening? What is going on here? But who are you? And then Ruth says, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a guardian redeemer of our family. That's it. When she says, spread the cloak, the corner of your garment over me, this is the exact same idea and possibly even in sometimes the same word when we talk the edge of a cloak as we talk about the wings that cover us in protection. It's the exact same concept. So God provided and protected Ruth. And now Ruth is saying, would you, Boaz, be an extension of that protection by putting the edge of your cloak over me? It's a ritual saying, can I come under your protection? Will you, Boaz, be our guardian redeemer? It's kind of like a proposal, but reverse. So no one ever said there's no feminism in the Bible. So reverse proposal. And at, that, at this, Boaz, he not only accepts, but he's actually honored by what she says. Listen to this, verse 10. The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the younger men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I'll do for you all that you ask. All the people of my town know that you are a woman of noble character. Isn't that interesting? Boaz, his name literally means man of noble character. He calls Ruth a woman of noble character. It's a match made in heaven. It's these two noble character people getting together. And in responding this way, Boaz is showing again his loyalty to Ruth. He's saying, Ruth, I will provide for you. In fact, Ruth, I'm honored that you would want me to even provide for you. I'm old. There's probably people that are younger and better looking and and who may even fulfill the role as well. Are you sure you want me? So he says, yes. And then he says, oh, but wait, there's there's a little bit of a catch. See, because in those families, there wasn't just one guardian redeemer. There were multiple. So that if one guy dies and it's like, well, there's now we have another one or there's another one. Like there's multiple people. So he says, oh, shoot. You know what? There's actually a guy who's a little bit closer to Naomi. He's a little bit closer relative than I am. I got to go talk to him first and just make sure he kind of has the first right to like say yes or no to this. So let me go talk to him and then I'll come back to you. So he goes off and he goes and he talks to this guy. And I can just imagine he brings some other elders of the town around. They all sit down together and he's like, greetings, brother, friend, whatever. They sit down and he says, hey, I have a proposition for you. As you know, one of our cousins, he died when he was in Moab, but he has some land here in Bethlehem and it needs to be redeemed. 
See, Boaz, he starts with the soft pitch. The, the, he doesn't talk, start with the wife. He starts with the lands. He says, hey, there's some land. What do you think? Would you redeem it? Would you want to buy this back and give Naomi that money? And the guy's like, oh, okay. Yeah, I could do that. Absolutely. Since I, you know, that's kind of my right. Yes, I will do that. Boaz says, great. Just really fast, just one other thing. Uh, there's also a wife that you need to marry that comes with the land. And at this point, the guy says, let me rethink this. You know what? I'm good, actually. I think you can, you can have it. So he refuses. He says, you know what, Boaz? Like, I'm good. The land sounds great, but I'm not sure that I want to get married. So he says no. So at that point, Boaz is like, score. So he goes back to Ruth and he says, I'm going to redeem you. I'm going to be a part of this. You're going to be a part of my life. We're going to see a new life that we get to create together. And what I love about this is that it's reminding us again, this idea of the, the guardian redeemer. It's reminding us that God cares for the helpless, the vulnerable, the weak. See, I think sometimes when we think about this, we're like, well, that's the messed up. Like, how come that woman, like, how come she can't just like do it on her own? And again, God, he didn't create this, this society that, that cropped up, but he was one, the one saying, within Israel, we care for our people. In fact, not just our people, we care for foreigners and widows and orphans and strangers. We care for people because that's what it means to be people of God. And Boaz is living this out. And so sometimes we may read this as this kind of misogynistic, like, oh man, this man's got to buy this woman. It's like, no, God's providing a way for her to be protected again. He's caring for her and for Naomi and for future generations as well. And so eventually they get married. Boaz marries Ruth and it's beautiful. And they end up having a kid together and it's beautiful. And they have this, this beautiful child. And as we see the story, it's come full circle from chapter one, tragedy, to the end here. We started with death and grief and we ended with new life. We, ended, we started with death, we come back and husbands being lost and now we come back, we have husband again and we have a, a son and this whole circle has come to completion. And as the book concludes then, after everything's great and it's like, oh yay, they got married, they had a kid, everything's good. We then see a genealogy that's put right at the very end of the book of Ruth. Now, I don't know about you guys, but when I read a genealogy, I'm like, I don't care. None of this really matters. Like, this is just a bunch of people and a bunch of names. So it's interesting. I want to help you guys care about why in the world are there genealogies. So verse four, or chapter 4, verse 21, right at the end of Ruth. So Salmon was the father of Boaz. We know Boaz. Boaz was the father of Obed, which was the son that Boaz and Ruth had. Obed was the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David. Now, if you know anything about kind of Old Testament history, David was the greatest king the Israelites ever had. Ruth, this foreign widowed woman, becomes the great grandmother of the greatest king of Israel because of her faithful steps of just staying loyal, of following God, of following her people. And why I love so much these genealogies is because it's not just cool to see like, wow, look, from Ruth to, to David, there's so much more, because if you know anything about the line of David, do you know who comes from the line of David? Anyone just shout it out. Who's comes at the very end of the line of David? Jesus. Jesus. I kind of feel like Kyle there. It's Jesus. Jesus is always the answer. Jesus comes from the line of David. So Ruth is the great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus. A foreign woman from Moab who had no right being an Israelite, being redeemed by a man who had no right redeeming somebody that he wasn't sure he knew. And they come together and they have this beautiful genealogy. One other fascinating fact. It doesn't say this in here, but in the very beginning of Matthew chapter one, we see the whole genealogy of Jesus, which again, I'm like, boring, so many names, don't know what it's doing here. It starts with Adam and Eve all the way to Jesus. Oh my gosh. 
in that genealogy, there's only four women mentioned, which is fascinating to me, but the four women are mentioned. One of them is Ruth. Ruth is mentioned. It's not just like Boaz and then Boaz is the father of Obed. It says Boaz, whose wife was Ruth. What's interesting is just two generations before that, it mentions a woman named Rahab. And if you know anything about your, your uh, history of the Jewish people, Rahab was the prostitute who lived in the city of Jericho, who helped the Israelites take over Jericho and take over the land. She said, just please let me become an Israelite. Let me be a part of your people. Rahab, Rahab was married to Salmon. Rahab is the mother of Boaz. So not only does Boaz care and provide for a, a foreigner woman who he doesn't know, he has a mother who was the exact same. He has a mother who came from the exact same idea and place. So I can imagine that Boaz knew what it meant to take care of people because he had these stories of his mother who's like, Boaz, man, like being a foreigner in Israel, like, it's hard. I don't know your customs. I'm trying to learn these things. Like people, they mock me. They, they don't love me. They, they discriminate against me. Boaz, it's hard. Boaz, you are a good man. You're a loyal man. You're a man of great character. Would you, Boaz, provide for the foreigners like I was provided for? Boaz's lineage is so powerful because he looks and he says, I know what it means to be a foreigner. I know what it means maybe to kind of be mocked as having a mother who wasn't an Israelite. And so he provides for Ruth. And then we see this incredible lineage all the way to a life-changing lineage of having Jesus come out of your line. It's an amazing story where people take faithful step after faithful step after faithful step just to say, you know what, I'm just gonna take another step towards home. I'm gonna take another step towards being loyal, towards doing I know what is right. And at the end, God blesses them. So the first thing we learn is that God blesses people as they take faithful steps of faith and courage. But secondly, and this is gonna sound really cheesy, we learn from this book that home is where the heart is. Home's where the heart is. Think about what we talked about at the very beginning. Our homes are really about the people that are there. You may not feel at home in your actual house. You might feel at home with friends. You might feel at home at work. You might feel at home with a spouse or a boyfriend or significant other. You may feel at home somewhere else. But I do know this, a couple years ago, all of us experienced what I kind of feel like was a famine. Similar to the beginning of the book of Ruth, we went through a massive pandemic. And whatever you, you, wherever you landed on all that, however that worked out, I know that your life was massively disrupted. Massively. And not just work-wise or money-wise, which is part of that, or food, or I didn't have enough toilet paper, all those things that came with the beginning of it. Your relationships were affected. You've lost good friends. You've lost family members. Maybe you've lost a church because of everything that went down. And each one of us, like we said in the beginning, we want to come home to something. We want to find a place where we can say, that is my home. And the pain over the past two years has left us in this state of feeling like we need another good home. We need to come home somewhere. And so maybe some of you today, you, you came in, in this church and you're like, I've never been to Fred's before. I've never even experienced this place before. And now I'm here and I don't know what that means. And we'd love to have you make a home here at Friends. Maybe some of you, you walked away from faith in general. You were like, you know what? This past couple years has been enough. I'm good. Now I'm here back at church. I don't know how I got here. Someone invited me or someone forced me to be here, but I don't know if I can really like find a place at a church again. And for you, maybe it's just taking one little step to say, what if I just tried it? 
What if I tried coming in and, and getting connected and finding a place again, a home? Because you want that. We all want to sit on that couch. We all want to just, okay, I want to be known. I want to know other people. We want to be a part of a community. Some of you, you were a part of communities here at Friends. You were in Rooted. You were in a life group. You had connection. But the past couple of years, things have just kind of gotten wonky. People have moved political differences, all those things has kind of created this new disruption. And so today you're finding yourself saying, man, I really want to be back in community again. I want to get reconnected. Maybe today you're like, oh, I'm super connected. I'm good. Great. The Lord bless you. That's fantastic. But for, I know for a lot of us, we're looking for home again. And so when you came in, you each got these cards. They're, they're on your seats in front of you. I just want you to grab this and look at it. This isn't like a a program promo, like, hey, get involved in our programs. This is an opportunity to come home. This is an opportunity. If you found yourself saying, I've never been connected at a church before, or at least I've never been connected at this church, and I just, I want to know what you're talking about. I want to experience that sitting down on a couch, being able to show some pictures up on the screen saying, I have a new family now. That's what Alpha is. If you're looking to get connected here, I want you to be a part of Alpha. Alpha. If you've been connected and you're like, man, I just got to get reconnected, great. We have this thing called the group relaunch. It's really easy. Just show up next Sunday night. We'll put you back into a group. You were in Rooted before or in Life Group, and now you're just like, I don't know where I land. Come back. Come back home. We'll get you connected. So maybe the next step of faith for each of you is just to flip the card over and to just write your name and your email on this side. On either one, wherever you land in that, and say, I think I'm ready. I think I'm ready to take a next step. Because when I look at the book of Ruth and her story, she didn't know. She didn't know what was going to happen. She just said, well, now this tragedy's happened, and now I'm going to stick with Naomi. I'm going to stick with the family. She didn't know what was going to happen with Boaz, but she said, you know what? I'm going to take a faithful step to go work in a field. I'm going to go take a faithful step to like lay down at his feet and just see what happens. I'm going to take a faithful step, faithful step, faithful step. And eventually, she found an entirely new home and community. That could be you today. So maybe your step. It's just filling out a card, handing it to me or someone at the next steps area or just leaving it on your chair or putting it in a basket or just putting it on the stage. I don't care. Wherever you want to put these cards, I want you to take a step because I believe God wants each and every one of us to come home today. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you that you are with us And Jesus, as I think about this idea of coming home, we can come home because you are a good dad who has created a good home for us. And while we can't have heaven completely right now, you have given us a taste of it through community. And so God, I just pray whoever's in this room right now who needs to hear this, that they would hear that it is time to come home. It's time to re-engage. Because they have that longing, I have that longing to be connected, to be in community, to know that I am known and to know the stories of others. So God, through your word today, would you convict us? Would you move us? And ultimately, would you give us the desires of our heart, which is to come to a good home, God? God, we thank you. Thank you that you speak to us and that you go before us and you're with us, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in your name. Amen.